0: very warm welcome to the Organist Encores. Yes, it's that time of month again for me, RHJ, to take the helm. Well, we've had some terrific programs over the past few weeks from John and Damon with some really marvellous archive material that if if you've missed a show recently, it's well worth going back and having a listen. Well, I hope I'm not going to spoil the uh, form with today's show. And by the time you hear this, if you're hearing it on the day of the broadcast, It'll be 109 years and one day will have passed uh, since the father of the theatre organ, Robert Hope Jones, tragically passed away in the USA on September 13th, 1914. So let's remember Robert, or Bobby as he was known to his brother Hanforth, as we touch on a few areas where the man and his legacy prompted a whirlwind of creative innovation not only in the US, the country that eagerly welcomed his ideas with open arms, but back in his homeland, where his early ideas for the unit organ were incubated and posthumously came of age as builders such as John Compton, who admired RHGA, served the new technological wave left in his wake. Few Hope Jones instruments survive in the UK. A few early examples from the late 1890s remain in churches, which miraculously retain much of the pipework and technology thanks to thoughtful restoration. Such examples include Pilton Paris Church in North Devon and one in bonus on Windermere in Cumbria. The second organ I saw in person and, like the Devon job, Hope Jones's signature minimalist console remains. If you've never seen one of these consoles, they're striking and virtually devoid of casework or panels. Like some mythical Ark, the keyboards and stops sit atop of two beams resting on an open frame that connects it to the pedalboard. Not only did RHJ think out of the box with this design, he got rid of the box. Over in the USA, a prime example is preserved in the First Universalist Church in Elmira, New York. This organ was built in 1908 and is controlled by one of Hope Jones's signature horseshoe consoles. It remains playable to this day, and thankfully the owners are fully aware of its historical importance. Well, as it's in a church, uh, let's go ancient and modern and hear Alex Jones playing the 1908 organ in 2019. I Know Why, played by Alex Jones on the 313 Hope Jones organ. Well, that's not quite the full-blown theatre organ sound that we've come to know and love, but a taste of things to come. Of course, these instruments were evolving to play more secular music of the day, such as transcriptions and beyond RHJ's wishes to imitate an orchestra, it appears that at the forefront of his mind was to make an instrument that was superior in every way that could make the job of the organist easier, freeing them up for unimpeded expression. The most significant instrument to survive is his magnum opus at Ocean Grove, albeit now nestled among the behemoth that has grown up around the original 14 ranks. I was privileged to get a tour of this venue in the 1990s. The pipes still sit there where they were planted deep down inside the submerged cement chambers. The previous second-hand organ never stayed in tune and had rotted in place due to the corrosive saline air permeating the ocean-facing property. To Hope Jones, it was a chance to put his ideas into practice and raise the standards of organ building once again. A fully enclosed instrument with temperature-controlled chambers that spoke upwards past lead-lined shutters and out into the auditorium via one of his parabolic tone shoots. To overcome the corrosive nature of the environment, he incorporated springs into his chests and toe boards and bottom boards, allowing joints to expand and contract, and even gave his screws, bolts, washers and springs an anti-corrosive coating. He knew that this instrument had the potential to be a showpiece for new customers and was the instrument that impressed Wurlitzer's into buying up his floundering business. He specified 18 ranks, but funds only stretched to 14. However, each rank earned its place in the instrument, which, when combined with the forces of his high-pressure wind voicing, unification and sound insulation, could go from a roar to a whisper instantly. It was the perfect demonstration of his system to date. The organ was captured in 1929 by Thomas Edison's new recording technology. While the equipment didn't capture the full dynamic range, we do get an insight into the kind of popular music these organs were built to play. This is Clarence Coleman playing his famous storm arrangement. If you listen very carefully, you can hear the organ's thunder effect as the 32 foot diaphones rattle in the distance. The Edison recording infusing them with a sort of sheen of eeriness. Storm, played by Clarence Coleman on the 414 Ocean Grove instrument. After Hope Jones's Elmira Company folded, many of his skilled employees, whom he trained, didn't join him at Wurlitz's Wonder factory, where the unit orchestra department was set up. His key men followed him, but this skeleton crew was no match for the leap expected by Wurlitzers to produce commercially viable stock organs. Robert would be stretched to the maximum, solving problems in every area of his department as his instrument was rushed to the market to fill up the emerging theatre business. With a lack of skilled workers, it took years to overcome multiple failures and financial losses. Ultimately, Hope Jones had gotten himself into a business partnership that was determined to keep him focused on making a profitable organ, something he could not comprehend, in his desire to keep perfecting. And that was his Achilles heel because Wurlitzers were really the proverbial golden goose. But feeling tied down, he couldn't see it. By 1914, he'd fallen out with Wurlitzers and was banned from the factory. He'd lined up plenty of potential sales, but even those he was no longer permitted to service. The final instrument to be installed under his supervision was Opus 41 in the Liberty Theatre, Seattle. A purpose-built house practically built around the organ just for showing silent films. The venue and organ combined was a huge success and a turning point for movie theatre business, and Wurlitz has now had two feet firmly planted in a gold mine. The Liberty instrument survives in its third home, albeit in a modified form. I couldn't find a suitable recording of it to play today, but uh, I believe if you want to hear it, Mark Herman will be performing a concert on the instrument sometime next month. Less than a month before the organ's opening, Robert had had enough and took his own life. Before this drastic measure, he'd had a chance to see his elder brother Hanford for the first time in 17 years. Correspondence with him revealed how he'd felt ill and shared his regret over trying to escape his contract with Wurlitzer, especially as it was having a toll on his wife, Cecil. One wonders if he might not have committed suicide, if he had not secured that commission on all future organ sales, something that would uh, support Cecil for the rest of her days. Let's listen to George Wright interview one of Robert's employees, who travelled from England to the US to work for the famous inventor.
1: Dateline, Santa Barbara, California, February 1970, with a gentleman I love very much. I've known this man since I was 15 years old, and he is now 85 years old. This man has forgotten more about theater organs than most people ever knew, and that is the reason I'm here, to, as it were, get it from the horse's mouth. This man was in on the theatre organ from its very beginnings and and worked with the people who conceived the instrument. I'm speaking of a man who was like a father to me, and I still feel that way. His name is Fred Wood. Hello, Fred. What was uh, approximately the first date that you were associated with uh, Hope Jones, and, and how did you come to be associated with him?
2: Well, I come to be associated with him because of a man that had been to the United States from England and worked at Skinner Organ Company in Boston. He worked for Skinner and Hope Jones was with Skinner for a short time. He didn't care much for the trade. He came back to England and went to work in the shop where I was working. And used to talk to me about Austin and about Hope Jones.
1: Oh, the, the the shop where you were working was in England, is that correct?
2: Lewis and Company, Brixton, London, yes. They I wrote to Hope Jones, and he said that he couldn't hire me from England, but if I came over there, I'd I'd have no trouble of getting work with him. So, of course, I came over, and he'd just then come from Elmira, the whole thing, because wherever he went, he failed. He was not a businessman. He was an inventor. He was an electrical engineer by training. He could have made much more money as electrical engineering. than he could have organ-building.
1: He played the organ some, too, didn't he? He was an
2: organist and choir master himself, sure.
1: Would you say that he was an... Academic? Nuttall
2: was one of his choir
1: boys. Jimmy Nuttall. Jimmy Nuttall. Would you say that Hope Jones was an accomplished organist, or just... Oh, yes. He was.
2: He had a school of music, too, here. You you know that. No, it, I didn't know it. Yes, he gave it, gave it in charge to White, that man that wrote me. Hey, White was running it for him, Hope Jones School of Music. Oh, yeah. After a while, I was only a young married man, of course, I had one little daughter and I decided that I'd like to try and work for Hope Jones to see what kind of work he built it was all Greek to me as I said I didn't know a magnet from uh, anything (laughs) because that was the whole trouble uh, really was uh, with Hope Jones they couldn't put him down so that their salesman could go out and advise a theatre manager or owner what size organ he should have for his theatre they wanted to be able to have their I was going go and meet a man that didn't know anything about an organ. I didn't have to consult an organ committee or anything. And that's, of course, Hope Jones, they couldn't pin him down. He wanted to keep making like, improvements and changes and so forth, which, of course, that's what an inventor is. He's always making changes and so forth. So, you know, in the early days before Hope Jones died, he used to use pencil strings for a violin effect you know, called them Ville d'Orchestre and Ville Celeste. But the pencil strings gave the closest approach to a string you could get with a pipe, but they didn't stand up. they go off the to speech
1: too quick. The language, yes. were forever needing to be tapped down: Yes, and go off with
2: speech too quick, so of course. after Hope Jones had gone, they changed it and then practically made it into a celestial you see, which would stand up mm-hmm. take the pressure. At one time when he was alive, the oboe and clarinets were faithful to tone.
1: But you were in on the installation of the Denver Auditorium. Oh, yes. Uh, what about the ISIS Theater in Denver? Did you do I don't that? There was
2: none on that.
1: I understand that during some of the opening performances of the organ in that theater, that Hope Jones was seated on a big throne-like chair on the stage.
2: He may have been. I don't know. While the organ there. was introduced to the I audience. I on the console. I made the part of the console.
1: Thank you so much, Fred. You're a dear man. Thank you, Joe. With George's
0: long association with Fred, it's no wonder that he knew a thing or two about how to make his organs sound just the way he wanted them to. The complete 37-minute long interview is fascinating and can be found on William Cole's Banda CD release, Back to School. Fred worked on most of San Francisco's great Wurlitzer installations, including the big Market Street instruments uh, like the Fox and the earlier mighty 1921 uh, 432 instrument installed in the Granada Theater. This instrument can be seen being constructed and delivered in Wurlitzer's famous promotional movie and was another indication of how important these instruments had become not only to the movie house but to the bank balances of Wurlitzer and the emerging movie moguls. Let's hear George Wright during his 1960s concert after the organ was brought back to life by Ed Stout. (laughs) i <laughs> Raucous Java there, played by George Wright on the 432 Wurlitzer, in the Paramount, formerly Granada, San Francisco. What a sound, and another example of an early movie house designed around an organ. With Hope Jones gone now, any loyalty that his employees had for Wurlitzer's had vanished. He'd instilled a sense of independence in them, and relied on the best of his men to help him solve problems and bring his ideas to life. So it wasn't long before his men began looking elsewhere for work. Some of them had had enough gumption to set up as competitors to Tonawanda. Let's hear an example of the competition. David Peckhamer swinging on a star. The organ? A 1925 Marr and Colton installed in the Clemens Theatre in Elmira. David Marr had been with Hope Jones since the very beginning in Birkenhead, while John Colton apprenticed as a voicer at the Elmira factory. Totally, they achieved a decent sound, but cut corners on quality wherever they could. Despite this, they built around 300 organs. The Clemens organ originally consisted of a three-manual console controlling 20 ranks in three chambers with limited unification. Today, it's controlled by a four-manual Wurlitzer console. Robert's right-hand man, Joseph Carruthers, left Wurlitzer in 1914 and joined the already mighty Kimball Organ Company. Now, while Kimball's head voicer, George Michael, had already set the standard for the Kimball sound, Nuttall was not only a well-paid voicer but also an engineer and introduced Kimball to the Hope Jones triple-vowel regulator. I'm unaware of who uh, designed Kimball's consoles, but uh, like those of Moran Colton, they are clearly patterned after Hope Jones's pre-Wurlitzer horseshoe consoles, recognisable by the little ears that would sit atop of those early consoles. Let's listen to the sounds of a refined Kimball. Ooh, Stella by Starlight, Tony Fenlon there, with a gorgeous arrangement on that Stella 366 Kimball organ in Dickinson High School. Hope Jones's fertile mind churned out invention after invention. Many survived the test of time and have become stable parts of the modern pipe organ. It would take existing ideas and make them better, such as electrical systems and relays that made these instruments possible and put greater control in the hands of organists. While some will say that the early unit organs were nowhere near as versatile as the ones being churned out in the 1920s, those instruments contained the DNA of one man's passion to create a new sound as far away from tradition as possible. It was the embryo that allowed others to take his wonderful new tone palette and help it come of age. Now we've heard Fred Woods's voice earlier and I've often wondered how Roberts might have sounded. I used to have a fantasy that some box in an undiscovered room in the old Wurlitzer factory had an old Edison dictaphone recording containing Robert's voice with a stream of consciousness describing some new invention. Perhaps he sounded like his brother, Frank Hope Jones, the famous horologist who played a major role in bringing accurate time to the world and was involved with the Greenwich uh, time signal. And those famous pips are still heard today on the BBC. There's an archive recording of him demonstrating the pips on the radio and of how to move your clocks forward. Here's a snippet.
2: Here is Mr F. Hope Jones. Our time takes Stand by. Are you ready? The last five seconds of the hour and the last one will be the exact hour. Pip,
3: pip, pip,
0: pip, pip, pip. Frank Hope Jones there. Robert's brother. How shall I end this programme? somewhere far off in the future, a time when Hope Jones predicted would come during his 1891 lecture at the College of Organists in London. The 32-year-old described his clear vision of a pipeless electric organ based on additive synthesis. That's 20 years before electronic technology became available, nearly half a century before Hammond and Compton brought their instruments to the market, and almost a century before it was finally realised digitally at Bradford University in the 1980s. It gives great insight into how his mind could reach within the realms of creation and imagine something new. Let's leave it to Pierre Fraculanza to help us remember the great man on the current generation of electric organs, a virtual 450 pipe organ. I remember you, Pierre Fracalanza, helping us remember the great man. Well, no matter how history tries to paint Hope Jones's character, work or legacy, he was pure lightning in a bottle. A Shiva-like genius who faced down traditionalists and left our world a whole lot more colourful than how he found it. So, Robert, thank you. Well, that's it for me. I'm Sorry if I've talked on a little bit more than normal, but I do hope you've enjoyed the show and uh, be sure to tune in next week when I think, I think Damon is back at the microphone. Until next time, cheerio.